welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fosbury. This week I'm at the Hoxton Hotel in Shoreditch in East London to meet someone who's been described as a musical butterfly. She'll probably blush when she hears me say that. <laughs> Dr. Helen French is a talented Baroque flautist and can be heard in our introduction playing the traditional air Farewell Ye Hills and Valleys. Hannah is an academic. She studied at the prestigious Royal Academy of Music, lectured and tutored there for 12 years, and is now an author and much-loved BBC broadcaster. Her dulcet tones can be heard on Radio 3, where she presents programmes like Record Review Extra, The Early Music Show, Breakfast and Live Classical Concerts. Hannah has a collagen deficiency, which means she needs a wheelchair and suffers chronic pain, a subject she's explored in documentaries about living with hidden disabilities to get the subject out in the open. But you'd never know it from her beautiful smile, energy and disposition. There you go, Hannah. Is that a good enough introduction? I'm blushing. I'm blushing. I was blushing at the butterfly, but I'm definitely blushing. I saw that on your website, actually. Musical butterfly. (laughs) But it was a lovely way to describe you. That was a beautiful piece. That was you playing the flute. The 18th century really was the golden age, wasn't it? it for flute playing it was the instrument was new it was fashionable it was the thing to do and the instrument makers were flourishing and it made a beautiful sound it was way more expressive than the recorder that came before it you know it imitated the human voice far more and it was it was sexy and where does that piece of music come from? Well, it's a traditional air. It's one I found in the British Library in a book of minuets and airs and songs and all this kind of stuff. And a really amazing looking little book. They look like checkbooks at that kind of size and they were designed to fit inside a gentleman's pocket. And, you know, they contained all the latest tunes from court, maybe from the opera. It meant you kept up to date with what was going on. And yeah, the gentleman would uh, keep it in his pocket and every now and again, he'd whip it out and entertain his friends. And sometimes he'd have his flute in his walking stick. He would. So there is an amazing Gainsborough portrait that's in Tate Britain. And it shows three characters and the, the middle one sitting playing the flute outside by a big old oak tree. And basically this was possible. There are walking sticks that survive all over the place in museums and they contain musical instruments. They contain other things as well, like quills and telescopes and all sorts of clandestine things. And, you know, it was a, a very fashionable pursuit, I guess. And yeah, so he's entertaining his friends, playing these popular songs. It's... I saw actually the interview that you did when you were at the Tate. Beautiful picture of you in front of a Gainsborough painting featuring William Keeble, who's holding his flute. How much intel can you get, Hannah, from these pictures, paintings from the 1700s? What story do they tell you? They contain secrets, I think. You know, when someone sits for a painting, you wonder why they're doing it. You know, they're going to potentially hang it on their wall. They want it to say something about them. And that one's really fascinating because I I showed it to the instrument maker that I used, a chap called Martin Venner, and he makes beautiful flutes. And he said, yeah, I think he's playing an Oberlander, which is a particular make of the day. And it's curious because it's a very, very well-made, well-voiced flute. He could have had a flute that was much more flashy with silver on it and and, and ivory and engraved and all this kind of stuff. But actually he chose a flute that made a better sound than that. 
And he's shown playing it. Usually aristocrats would sit with an instrument and, and it would look much more flattering. He's holding it up to his lips, which is <laughs> really a very good look. Um, but he's also adopting a really formal pose. And at that time, you could buy instruction books. You might not have a teacher. You might, maybe you'd see somebody when you're in London, but then you could buy an instruction book and take it home with your checkbook book and apply all of these things. And you can tell that he's sitting very properly and he's doing all the right things. So he's really showing that, yeah, I've got this great instrument and I can play it as well. It's wonderful, isn't it? When art, that kind of art of that age and music come together, because it is, it's piecing together a story, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it really brings it to life, especially at the point that you can play an instrument that you think is the instrument that's in the picture. And it all just, yeah, it all comes together. Do you like to lose yourself at the British Library finding these pocketbooks of tunes? Oh, it's like a, it's like a rabbit hole. It's a warren. I could spend days and weeks and never come out. <laughs> <laughs> and you open them and you think, how many people have opened this before? And 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 what music's in here that hasn't been heard before and hasn't been heard since? And, oh, you know. it sounds like a kid in a candy store, yeah, really. And what originally Hannah drew you to? Well, not just the flute, but baroque flute. I think I'd been playing Baroque music for most of my life. My piano teacher could never believe it when I wanted to play Bach again. She's like, no, no, play this Mozart. And I'm like, no, no, I, I want to play Bach. It was my dad who really instilled that love in me. He adored Bach. He could play chorales by ear. He could he? couldn't really play music, read music, but he could play all of the chorales that he had at his wedding by ear. And I was always amazed by that. So on um, the piano, we're talking about on, yeah, playing the piano. on the piano, yeah. And I was just always mesmerised by it. It was just something that clicked from a really young age. And I played the flutes and I loved playing the flute. It was great. And I got to university and I heard a concert and someone was playing a Baroque flute, wooden flute. I was like, that sounds incredible. And then I went off to find out what it was and what really was going on and asked them if I could do that too. Like, Absolutely. So I switched from playing a modern silver flute to playing the wooden historical flutes. We'll dip into your background and life growing up in Yorkshire a bit later on, but did your house resound to the sound of music? I've now got an image of your dad always at the piano and beautiful, <laughs> beautiful music playing. Was it like that when you were growing um, up? My parents are, and my dad was, really music-loving but I wouldn't say they were practitioners as such. We always sang in harmony at church, but they weren't professional musicians at all. Um, I'm not really very sure where all of that comes from, but no, they were always really keen to take us to concerts and for us to just experience it. And growing up in Leeds, um, they have a really amazing music services there and we played in bands and orchestras and all that kind of stuff. It's something I think in today's world that sometimes we lose sight of. If you're not working as you are in classical music and the musical world, it's really easy just to forget to put something beautiful like that. I grew up with music. My nana and my two great aunties both played the piano, played by ear, Christmases, birthdays, there was always somebody sitting at the piano just playing yeah. something. And preparing for this today, I thought, gosh, it's not very often now at home. I've still got a record player with a bit of vinyl and I haven't put any classical vinyl on for a long time. And actually, I think we need that in our lives, don't yeah. we? Yeah. It's so calming when life's hectic and the last year and a half has been so stressful. Well, exactly. And it's a funny thing now, isn't it? Because we can get in real tracks of listening, almost ruts of listening. Using platforms like Spotify, where they say, oh, you like this, you'll like this. And you like, and you think, yeah, I do. I do. That's great. That's great. That's great. And before you know it, you're actually listening to a lot of quite similar stuff. 
It's why I love the radio because yeah, even if you are tuning into a particular station, it does mean that you're not choosing what's coming up next. But you mentioned Christmas and for years I, I taught the piano and I always say to people, make sure you keep going until you can play Christmas carols because it's what you'll want to do when you're older. It's what you'll want to do if you have kids. It's what you want to do. Go into all people's homes and play at Christmas time. It's like, it is just a real thing, I think. And do you play by ear or are you more reading music, school of thought? Bit of a mixture, mostly reading. Yeah. Um, but I like to busk along if I've got a bit of a line or something. And working at Radio 3, for you, that must be just the perfect habitat. I saw you the other day in your element on, I think you were on Instagram, and you were chatting to one of the world's most notable keyboard players. And it was ahead of a Handel and Purcell concert at Wigmore Hall. And I think you actually commented on your Instagram that you forget sometimes that that's actually a job for you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's all really come together. And I feel like at Radio 3, I've found my tribe. I was an academic for years, as you, as you say, and, and I, I love that too. But actually... I, I like getting out there, communicating directly. And there's something really special about introducing music. Yeah, I'm not playing it, but it's like, it's like a picture in the wrong frame would do nothing. The frame is really important. I suppose we're back to, <laughs> we're back to Gainsborough. And if you put Gainsborough in an Ikea frame, you might just walk past it the first time. <laughs> and, you know, it is important how things are set up and, and it's a really fun thing to be able to share things with an audience directly. And it's a listening audience at home, not even just in the hall. Sometimes I think I'm, you know, my job is to sit at the side of the concert hall and, and share secrets with them and point out things that are going to help people to listen to music just that little bit differently and, and get loads of enjoyment out of it. I've brought with me a, an example of that. Go on. It's from an oratorio by Alessandro Scarlatti and it was written in 1693. So in this moment, it's, it's a lullaby and it's beautiful. It's a nurse singing uh, a warrior off to sleep. If you didn't know any more than that, you'd think this is sublime music. But the next thing that happens is that he gets his head chopped off because he's Holofernes and Judith is about to deliver her fatal blow. And when you know that, it takes on this kind of ironic twist. And yeah, it's it's a it's one way to say goodnight. <laughs> Often do you put that on, Hannah? Do you listen to that very often, the lullaby? I do. <laughs> I do. And it's kind of, it, it slightly gives me the creeps and yet it's the most beautiful thing. I remember the first time I, I played it very, very late at night on a record review extra. I've played it at all different times of the day, but memorably the first time, very late at night, promising a beautiful lullaby, but then just slipping that in at the last minute and wishing everyone good night. Sweet it's just, you're bringing the, <laughs> you're just bringing the music to life. I think when you tell those little stories, because for me, when I do get time, which isn't very often, and I need to make more time for classical music, the music takes over my mind and transports me to beautiful places. But I'm fascinated by the backstories and the composers and often extraordinary lives. And I know you've dug deep into, you mentioned Bach a bit earlier. You've dug deep, haven't you, into J.S. Bach, thanks to Sir Henry J. Wood? Yes, yes. Well, you see, I am absolutely fascinated by 
the original context. What was Bach really like? There's a portrait that hangs in the British Library, just as you go into the rare books and manuscript reading room of Bach. And, it, you know, it's a very, it's a very severe portrait at first glance. And it's, you know, it's the classic, but there is a twinkle in his eye. And the more you learn about Bach and the more you learn about his home life and his drinking habits and how he dealt with other people and what he really was into. Yes, he was a pious man and yes, he was a clever man, but he was also a dad and a friend and a husband. And, you know, there's a twinkle in that eye. So yeah, I'm curious always eternally about the original context. And I, I've said before, I like to be a porky for listeners just to take them to that place and just to set it up enough that they go, ah, yeah, that's why something's surprising in the music or shocking or, but also I'm really fascinated about what happens after composers die. And especially with Bach, because his music, I mean, they said at at the church in Leipzig at St. Thomas's where he had been working, that it was as if his music died with him and pretty much for a hundred years, it wasn't really heard again. And I find it fascinating looking at the people who dug it out again, having those same experiences as me in the British Library going, what is this? Is this a gem? Is this something that's sleeping for good reason? Let's find out and let's see. And and for me, Henry Wood is one of those people. He was a Londoner. He grew up on Oxford Street. Yes, he was founder of the proms and his mantra in life was to bring music to the people, to make it really accessible. But he also had a real thing for Bach. And the more I looked into his life, the more I saw how it punctuated him growing up and his real passion and how he came back to it. And by the end of his life, he said, you know, I've done so many things, but what little time I had to myself, I gave to the study of dear Johann Sebastian. You know, this was a lifelong passion. He is credited, and I credit him, with popularising the Brandenburg Concertos. And the Brandenburg Concertos are the most toe-tapping, people-friendly, dance-along moments. And he was the right person at the right time to bring them to the people. You know, when they were really popular, it was between the wars. And that was at a time when people were mostly either into things like jazz, on the one hand, or music that really helped them to move. And that's exactly what Bach did. His performances of it, and when you often hear early performances of Bach, they're very serious, they're very severe, they're very much that severe portrait of Bach. He's the learned composer. But actually what Henry Wood did with it, he looked at it, he looked at the dances, he looked at how you, the steps of these dances, and he played he played them quickly, for want of a better <laughs> phrase. And they're exciting. They're not always perfect, but they're not like the other recordings of the time. They're not these slow, stately, serious things. He was somebody who also learned about Bach. There was this brilliant morning I had at the Royal Academy of Music Library, looking through the books that he owned. And they hadn't been looked at since he deposited them there. And you could see which pages he'd bent over. You could see his thumb marks. You could see all these things. And you could see how he'd read about Bach and understood it. And then he'd given a lecture about him as well, about his life and times. And it wasn't a serious of the age turn of the 20th century, let's talk about Bach. It was, have you heard of Bach? Well, let me tell you, he was like this and he was like this and blah, blah, blah. And, And it was a really open, honest, down-to-earth conversation. And it just really convinced me that actually he was the right person at the right time to do this. You wrote a book, didn't you? Yes. What was the book called? It's called Sir Henry Wood, Champion of Johann Sebastian Bach. 
And it wasn't just Bach, but other leading composers of the day. He championed Rachmaninoff, Strauss, Ravel, Vaughan Williams. Yeah. But he was really the composer's champion, wasn't he? And of course, conductor, not just founder, but conductor of the Proms. He was. And you, you have, it's, for me, often he feels like a bridge to another world. When he started the Proms, Brahms was still alive. And so what year was that, like, When was that? 1895. Gosh, wow. And it just seemed like a bridge to another world. I think in classical music, there are certain figures in history that do feel like a bridge. It's like you're holding hands across the ages and they connect Brahms with Vaughan Williams, with whoever. And it's just, yeah, it's amazing. It's mind blowing. Oh, it's amazing. And I bet there's another moment when you feel like pinching yourself. When you host the proms, I always think that must be the best gig in the world. Yeah, it's a real rush. Well, and it's something that I, I've never been. I've well, never I, been, that's crazy. I grew up listening to it, obviously, and, and, and watching the last night on telly. And you just don't dream that you're going to get that chance to do that yourself. And I've got to say, the first time you say, welcome to the Royal Albert Hall for this prom live on Radio 3, you're like, okay, keep breathing, keep breathing. <laughs> <laughs> you credit the Venetian composer, Barbara Strozzi, for liberating you from imposter syndrome. Expound, Miss Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Strozzi really was a woman in a man's world. And she was born into a very, very musical household and educated. Her, her father, who was her father, but not publicly and officially to start with, um, her mother was probably one of his servants, but he adopted her and very publicly made her his daughter, uh, as she actually was. Had her educated by the very best and set up an academy, which was more like a kind of club of the best musical and literary minds in town. Uh, and there were many of these academies in Venice at the time. And But set it up so that she would be the host and the talent. And there were lots of people who were very, very jealous of her and spread all sorts of salacious rumours about how actually she was a prostitute and that this is how she peddled her wares. And the extent to the truth in that is at times debatable, but the really, really significant thing is that she was a major, major talent. And her compositions, her interpretations of the literary texts, her powers of expression were absolutely second to none at the time. And she clearly could perform it as well. She's the real deal. And if anybody was going to have imposter syndrome, then it would be her. And, you know, when she sets words like, the rebel stars have no pity, you're like, yes, not quite. <laughs> What other backstories? What are your favourite ones, Hannah? I know you've probably got a zillion to choose from, but what are the ones that if you're talking to some students now and you wanted to bring something to life, what are some of your favourite tales? I'm massively biased, but it would be Bach. Because I think we do have so many preconceptions and expectations of him. And you just don't have to look any further than his ideas about parody, which was that he could take one of the secular tunes of the day, popular music, something that you could hear down at the coffee house on a Friday night, and he could transform that and take it into church. And the Christmas Oratorio is a really great example of that. So Christmas music that was written for the feast days starting over the Christmas period and then over New Year and Epiphany. And the music that he draws on for that comes from all sorts of places. And one really memorable one is a lullaby that Mary sings to the 
um, Christ child. And that comes from a secular cantata called The Choice of Hercules, where Hercules is being tempted by virtue and by vice. And that particular lullaby is sung by vice. And it's very, very flirtatious and tempting. And yet Bach then transforms it, the same music, into the most sublime sacred aria. And you obviously are immersed in music, obviously with your job. But do you find time, Hannah, to switch off? And do you use music as your way of unwinding and for pleasure? Do you get time to do that? Well, I'm really lucky because I think my job is my pleasure. But yeah, music is just boundless, isn't it? If I'm in the car, I often can't listen to classical music because I'll listen really intently and drive the wrong way. (laughs) And if I'm on the motorway, I need some really banging tunes. I need something that's going to keep me absolutely awake and with it and all this kind of stuff. And classical music, of course it can do that, but I often get really swept up in it and I need to step back and focus. There's just music for different times, isn't there? Sometimes do you just put headphones on and think, I'm just going to take an hour for myself and lose myself in a classical piece? Very, very rarely. The honest truth is the music in our house doesn't stop. The radio's on the whole time, or someone's playing a piano or the xylophone or something like that. Or we're listening to Radio 1 with my daughter in the car. It doesn't stop. And I find that I'm nearly always researching and I call it research and it's actually listening to music. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I do. I get lost for hours in so-called planning a radio program where actually, (laughs) okay, I need to decide which of these we're using now because I've just been listening for hours and ends. So I think that it's really hard for me to draw a line between my work time and my pleasure time. Usually it's just time either to pour a gin and tonic or go to bed. (laughs) But that's nice because that means you work in something that you're passionate about. I don't consider as a journalist or broadcaster that I've actually really done a day's proper work because every day is different and you're meeting different people and it feels like fun. And I think you've achieved something if you've got that in your life and you're not dreading going to work. In the introduction, Hannah, I mentioned that you've got a collagen deficiency and I'd never heard of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but will you tell us a little bit about it and and how it affects you. Mm, Of course. So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a collagen deficiency. It's hypermobility gone bad. So I imagine we all know somebody who's hypermobile, could do tricks with their fingers or stick their leg behind their neck. And all of that is fine unless you have a collagen deficiency, in which case it's like the rubber band gets pulled too many times and then it doesn't go back into the right place. I dislocate really easily and I spasm and I cramp very quickly. Um, And it affects most of my joints, but especially my left hip and my my left knee and my left ankle and my jaw as well on the diagonal side. Also affects my internal organs, which is a bind. And my skin is basically everywhere. It's anywhere that there are soft tissues and connective tissues. So there is no cure. There's no medication to take particularly. I've taken all sorts of painkillers from paracetamol to fentanyl. And I've invested in packs, ice packs, everything out there that's going The pain that comes with it um, can be acute. You know, if something dislocates, it hurts a lot, it goes back in and then you recover from it. I have chronic pain in my left hip, which is why I use a wheelchair. And that is nerve pain. And sadly, it's here to stay, it would seem. Yeah, I can walk about 
10 steps perhaps, but it's not very useful. Um, is this something you're born with, Hannah? It is. Yeah. yeah, you're born with it and it doesn't really manifest itself until it starts going wrong, really. I mean, I think in some people, I mean, Ellis Danos can look very different. You have it very, very mildly, you have it very severely and it has different types as well. I have a, a type that is a, a hypermobility type. You can have a vascular type. I'm very fortunate I don't have that. So yes, you, I was born with it. It is hereditary and it only really started visibly affecting me in my mid-twenties. That's when it started going wrong. When I was younger, I could just do all of the party circus tricks. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you cope with the pain? Because I presume talking about your hip pain, it's probably nearly always there, is it? The pain's a constant companion and... I wouldn't say that I've befriended it, but I've learned to live with it. And I use various CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, um, to feel like I'm a little bit more in control of it rather than it controlling me. Um, I have to remind myself that the pain that I feel in the rest of my body, which is very valid, and I complain about headache like the next person, is pain that I can treat. Whereas this is pain that I need to manage to live with. I often call myself a kind of high functioning pain warrior because I, I am very active now and I do a lot of stuff and it hasn't always been like that. I have had periods where it's not been possible. I, I spent time in a pain rehab institution for a while and I have a lot of time and kindness for anybody who isn't able to be so active with that pain, but it's now really just part of everyday life and everybody has something to deal with and I know what mine is and it is a it is a known thing now. I meant it though at the beginning we've only met actually we've only met once before it was when we were doing our poetry readings in church and you laughed because you had your piece and then somebody didn't turn up so you ended up with a <laughs> mega section to read but one thing that struck me when I first met you was your smile. You've just got the most beautiful smile. And I'm guessing that beautiful smile's there sometimes when you are feeling in pain. And that's just very difficult mm. for somebody who's not in pain to understand. And it's something I really admire about you. You've just got this gorgeous disposition and you'd never know that you're struggling when I'm sure you are sometimes. Thank you. I think it's why I like radio so much. Is it? Is it? <laughs> well, no one can see me, can they? No. And, and actually somebody, um, one of my colleagues, Susie Klein, said to me the other week, whatever you bring to a show, you've got to channel that energy into what you want it to be. And I've realised that is what I do with my pain sometimes. I really try to turn it into energy and use it because it's powerful and it's a life force of its own. And if it's going to come with me, it's going to have to get with the pitch. <laughs> it's going to have to work um, for its it living, is. isn't it? Yeah, it is. There are times when I don't feel the pain. We've said it's constant and it is constant, but there are momentary times when I don't feel the pain. And it's something that I investigated recently because I wanted to find some answers about it. And it, it really sprung from a question that you asked earlier and I evaded. Did you? Um, oh, I just noticed kind that, of. Hannah. Well, you did. And I thought, oh, oh gosh, go I, on then. should I tell you or not? Go on, tell um, me. And that's that I, I have a funny relationship with music because it is my passion and it is my pursuit. And yet... 
when I'm in my worst pain, if I'm having a really bad day, I don't want it anywhere near me. I don't want to hear music. It's not going to soothe me. It's not going to help. I don't find it relaxing. I actually don't often find music relaxing. I find it invigorating. I find it moving. I find it exciting and all those things. And maybe that's why I don't listen to it on the motorway as well. <laughs> but I don't find it, I don't find it relaxing and I don't find it helps with my pain. I battle my pain to make way for the music. And I decided recently, I, I really wanted to look into it in a lot more detail. And I made a documentary for Radio 3. And it was really fascinating to talk to other people who are musical and in pain and see how they coped with it. And I didn't really associate with them. Did you not? No. And they were telling me their story. It was very powerful, very moving. And I listened to them and I, I found I could empathize, but I couldn't take on any of their techniques and use them for myself. And in the end, it really, really helped me just to be more confident that actually there are times when I just need silence and that that's okay. And it doesn't make me any less musical. <laughs> and that, you know, there is a beauty in silence. There's a freedom in silence. And for me, there's a recovery, however short that might be in silence. I think that when I don't feel pain, that feels like a kind of silence too. So there are two examples of it. One is that years ago, when all of this was beginning, I was at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and they had a trial with Botox going. And my physio said, let's give this a go. Nothing to lose. Worst comes, you have a really smooth thigh. <laughs> okay. And we injected it, they injected it into my thigh and we filmed my legs straightening up over about 20 minutes. And it was the most extraordinary thing. And the pain would go away. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And it was like everything went quiet. It really was. And it was all of a sudden I had all this extra space in my head because, I mean, I must spend a lot of time thinking about the pain and doing all the techniques and all the kind of stuff that I have just become second nature. And then when it went away, it was this really, really weird sensation. And it was like, looking back over your shoulder or thinking, hang on, this, something's been switched off. It's like stepping into one of those studios that is completely dead in sound. Yeah. And then I started panicking about other things like memorably buying a toothbrush in boots. And I burst into tears in the middle of the aisle, just looking at all of these toothbrushes and which one was it going to be? Yeah, things that I would just usually have gone, yep, one of those, one of those, one of those. I just had all of this space. It was quite disconcerting and it took me quite a long time to trust it. But the problem was it didn't have very long because Botox wears off. And I say to my physio, I forgot to remember yesterday or be thankful or grateful. I didn't feel pain. I just forgot. It's, like, it's supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be that you don't think about the fact that you didn't have pain. It took, even at that stage, such a lot of conditioning. This is the new normal. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they then tried to replicate the effects of the Botox with surgery and it didn't work. And I can't go back to it now because you know. I wonder if it's, well, is it a bit as well, Hannah, that if you were in a lot of pain and then you, you were listening to the music, would that tarnish perhaps and spoil the music yeah. for you? So that is a fear and it might be an irrational fear, but it is a fear that I have. If I had a playlist that was my worst day playlist, you know, my fear would be, oh, what if that comes up in a concert and it's like suddenly my worst day playlist is playing and this is the time that I don't have to engage with the music or I, something else happens and I don't want to have 
those associations. I mean, we all have associations with music, the music that you perhaps had at your wedding or the music that you remember, you know, your first dance and all this kind of stuff that is music that is indelibly marked on your life. You know, music for grief as well, very powerful pieces that you associate so strongly with something. And that's great. That's all fine. But I don't want my pain to own any of that music. The music is there and the pain is there and they need to, for me, stay in two parallel tracks and they don't want to swerve into each other because that for me spells trouble. And I suppose that's my coping mechanism. But there are some pieces of music where that has already happened. There's um, in the B minor mass there is a, a moment where that happens. And if we were to play it now, I would be in a lot more immediate physical pain. And there are only a few places where I can actually generate that pain. I mean, if I stand up, the pain ramps up. If I'm in an airplane and I'm landing, the pain is unbelievable. And I think that's something to do with the G-force of the mechanics of hip sockets and all that kind of stuff. But there is something about that particular moment in that piece of music where all of a sudden it takes my breath away. I hear it out of context, just in the car, it comes on. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's switch this off. I went to see a neurologist to talk about it. And it was actually really quite incredible. We looked at it in context of where it comes in the piece of music. And of course, just before it is a monster, amazing, but monster long aria for tenor and flute. And I played that loads of times. Back when I played the flute before the pain was too bad and the, the wheelchair was necessary and all that. I would stand up to play it. And you stand up because coming out of the orchestra, it's about projection, it's about communicating with the singer, but it would be already painful. And I think, okay, okay, get through the introduction. We get through the introduction, the singer would come in and then there's some interaction between me and the singer. And then you like, start getting wrapped up in the music and then, and then, and then, and then it'd be over. And I'd sit down, I'd be like, I, I finished, I did it. And at that point, I couldn't remember necessarily the music that I'd played and I hadn't been in pain, but I'd sit down and the pain would rush in with a massive waterfall. And the music that played next was the music that I heard. And so apparently deep in my brain is this emotional connection with that physical moment and it recreates that pain. And the thing about not feeling the pain is a phenomenon called fascination or flow. When you become so absorbed in a moment that nothing else is important, you forget about everything else, you just become one with the music. <laughs> and you're so taken with that moment. And I think lots of musicians will experience that. And it's a great feeling. It's a real rush. And it's often a moment where something is within your capability, but almost just out. It's a challenge as well. It's something you have to stretch for. If you were going to stand up and play a really easy piece of music, it probably wouldn't happen. It, it's not something that you can do if it's a doddle. So it has to be a certain type of challenge that does that. And I have that now with radio. I definitely have it in live performances when the adrenaline's pushing. If you're not quite sure what's going to happen next, perhaps in moments where the producer says in my ear, yeah, they're taking a bit longer, just talk for another couple of moments and you're off. Those are the times when it happens because you're so absorbed in that moment and it's addictive. It's really adrenaline, addictive. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think in a way that is what spurs me on, those feelings are worth 
the pain that follows them because there always is, you know, there's, you can't, you know, you always have to pay for it, but it is worth it for those moments because I think it is that rush. And did your fingers struggle with the flute? Because if you disconnect quite easily, were there any techniques to help you play the flute? I played since I was about 10. So I suppose over that time, you know, you build up muscles and those kinds of things. My, my fingers are really long. In fact, I've got one finger that has an extra fold in it. See, I have four instead of three oh, gosh, folds in my finger. It's really long. And my flute maker, I mentioned at the start, Martin Venner was always fascinated by that because I could reach a really long key at the bottom. So when he was making flutes for me, he would measure my fingers and be like, oh, well, that's useful. So we can, you know, do things with that. But my fingers, my thumbs in particular, would really struggle. You can see, like now I've just been fiddling with a hair bobble. And with the hair bobble, I've made a... I've you made, made a splint. splint. Yeah. And I have splints like that. But that's really comfortable now. And it's holding my thumb in the right place because otherwise they turn back on themselves. And so, yeah, after I'd finished playing... I'd wear them as much as I wore them whilst I was playing because they're not always. Did you play them whilst you were playing too? Yeah, yeah, especially with my right hand because that would just collapse under the instrument. And actually, if I put the splint on it, it would move into a really good position. And you don't play now, Hannah, do you? I don't play now. No, no. do you miss it? I try not to think about it. You don't think about it. That's (laughs) That's a good answer. No, no, I. Radio isn't a compromise for me. And I think if I hadn't found radio, and it hadn't found me too, then I think I potentially be in a very sad place about it. I'm glad radio's found you because it's great to have somebody like you on the radio that brings, and I know there are lots of talented broadcasters, but you bring something very special to the table. And that's very lovely as a listener that you really do take the listeners on that journey. Thinking about you the other day, I often drive past the Royal Academy in central London, just opposite Marlborough Church. And you often see somebody either sort of skipping in with a violin or struggling in with a double bass or something. (laughs) And I always think, to me, it feels a magical place. And was it a magical place for you to both study and then lecture and tutor? It is a magical place. It's a place of massive aspiration and inspiration And a place where you go to study, but also where you go to make connections with friends that you have for the rest of your life, with amazing artists visiting musicians who come in that you meet and then encounter again later in life and can have a profound impression on you and change the way that you play and think. It's also a place that is, well... When I used to tutor there, I used to say that during audition time, the walls felt nervous. <laughs> and I used to tell people that the walls absorb the nerves and then you go in and leave the, leave your nerves in the walls. And, you know, it's a place where people realise that they can achieve amazing things and also where people find disappointments as well. And especially when it comes to pain. Because instruments put us in awkward positions, whether we're trying to carry them into the building or whether we're playing them. And then you add into that nervousness and tension and the desire to please and all of these things. And it's a lot of pressure. And learning to play an instrument is as much about learning technique and musicality as it is learning to be at one with your instrument and to relax playing it. And I think that helping students there that was a big part of their journey that they would most of them get so far and be like I've been in a practice I've been doing all of these things and like any conservatoire 
with people working absolutely at the top of their game and pushing their abilities and wanting to please and wanting to do the very best they can and spending hours and hours on it. If there's a chink in there from tension or from just the repetition and like any athlete as well, is that kind of principle that if there's anything that's not quite right in your technique, it can lead to pain. And as I was tutoring there, encounter numerous students who would come to me with pain and not quite knowing what to do about it and be panicked thinking, this is it. And if I tell anybody, then I'm not going to get that opportunity to play here or I'm not going to, and then they're going to look at me differently and it's all going to, and being in pain myself felt very strongly that they should have a safe space to come and open up about it. So they used to come and talk to me about these things. And then I would direct them to a very particular GP who specialised in RSI, that kind of thing. And, and also BAPAM, which is the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine, because pain for musicians is, it's almost an inevitability that at some point in your career, you're going to encounter it. And depending on how you approach it and deal with it and live with it, depends on how things are going to go later on. And of course, there are things like in my case that are out of your control. I couldn't have dealt with this any differently. And and so that's one thing. And, and pain does cut careers short. And that's the sad truth of it. But for lots of students, it was just a conversation that needed to be had. And once it was, and they'd spoken to their teachers about it, and they were open about it, and they looked at these things, and they had some treatment, and they're like, and now it's fine again. <laughs> Something that's not really talked about. It's a taboo because taboo. You think of it with ballerinas, and you know we've all seen those famous pictures of the beautiful pale pink silk ballet slippers, and then you see their feet, and they're cut to ribbons and bruised and sore, and calluses all over the place. But it never occurred to me that so many musicians could be in pain, and perhaps people felt that it was just them, and they didn't say anything in case this horrible phrase "no pain, no gain." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the answer to lots of it, and a principle that guides every day of my life is this idea of pacing. And it's such a simple one. Everybody does it. You've got to pace your way through life, pace your way through your day, pace your way through playing a concerto, pace your way through a radio show. There are moments in which you just go hell for leather because that's what it demands at that particular moment. But then there are moments where you have to just take a deep breath, let it flow, have an easy link here, play a piece here, let your fingers do what they're doing, and then come back to those moments again. And that's like that for me in day-to-day life. I'll have moments where I push myself because it's what needs to happen. I may experience some fascination or flow. That might happen. There might be more pain, but then I need to have a time in which I recover from that (laughs) because if you don't rest, and that doesn't mean going to bed, it might mean going to bed. I mean, if I could count the number of early music shows I've written in bed. <laughs> Again, how brilliant is radio? Nobody knows how many shows I write in bed. In your pyjamas. In or, my pyjamas. Yeah, exactly. Well, frankly, in lockdown, how many shows I've made in my pyjamas because <laughs> nobody can see me. Haven't we all? Haven't we all podcasted in? We're all clothed today. All clothed. Just before I let you go, Hannah, we, mm. we alluded to you growing up in Yorkshire and we talked a little bit about dad and his wonderful ability at the piano. But what was growing up in Yorkshire like? And, you know, happy childhood and fun and was Yorkshire a great place to be? I had a lovely childhood. I really did. Um, You know, we lived on the edge of the moor. I used to ride ponies on the moor. It was just, you know, I feel like I had a really rounded childhood. I learned to swim and we went to church and there was a lot of play. And I think that 
that for me has stood me in really good stead. I started playing the piano when I was five. So practice has been a thing for as long as I can remember. <laughs> but, you know, I think that we were lucky in Leeds because there was a really fabulous music service there. And, you know, I played in youth orchestra and various bands and we went on tour and, you know, I had a real taste of music. And for quite a while, I wasn't sure that music was going to be my career. And I was interested in all sorts of things. I think I think I wanted to be a meteorologist for quite a long time. But then when it came down to it, I came to do my A-levels and they said, oh, well, you can either do biology or music. Like, well, then there's no option there, is there? And then as it continued, I was like, I actually don't want to be a meteorologist and I can't imagine doing anything else. So music has been my passion. It's been what I've had fun doing. It's, it's where my friends are. And yeah, can I do this for the rest of my life? This seems like a good idea. I'm not sure how keen my parents were on it because they used to pack me off to either the accountants or the solicitors in my school holidays and in my university holidays. I think they thought I needed a decent backup. So I, I know all about personal injury claims and all sorts of things like that. So, yeah. We'll save that for another podcast, yeah. shall we? <laughs> At least you've got ologist in the title. I'd never actually heard of a musicologist. That's probably bad to confess. But so you want to meteorologist but you're a musicologist yeah well it's only a few letters different yeah not really that different what are you going to play us out on hannah well i have to play you out with some bach i love bach because i subscribe to henry wood's ideas that bach is for everybody and people often say to me oh do you like handle or bach best like well do you like apples or pears best i think it's true to say that handel wrote songs melodies that instrumentalists could play and Bach wrote instrumental lines, still melodies, but instrumental lines that singers could sing. And I play you out with an Alleluia from the end of his motet, uh, Lubert den Herrn. And it is the most joyful moment. Yeah, it's packed with counterpoint and all sorts of contrapuntal wizardry, but you just don't need to know about that because what shines through this is the sense that Christian right meets dance and and that these voices they sound like instruments these sopranos sound like trumpets you've got double basses you've got rich violas he's playing with color and all you need to do is open your ears and your heart been listening to BBC Radio 3 presenter, author and musicologist Dr Hannah French. I'll be back next week with triple amputee Mark Ormrod and also Pride of Britain winner for fundraising. Join me then. Bye.